The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 11 is where we will be. 11 and 12 today is our goal, just two chapters. Been looking forward to preaching this morning. Really like chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. Just kind of let you know where we're at, I guess. Uh, Last week, we saw that uh, Saul was proclaimed king in the nation, in Israel. Remember, he was hiding when he was proclaimed, and the Lord told them where to go and get him, but the people had asked for a king, and so God has given them a king. And you will see, really, throughout Samuel that Saul is a king after man's heart, which then will be compared later, when we get to David, to King David, who is a king after God's own heart. And we really will see the differences unfold over the next two weeks, this week and and next week uh, together. But today, really, uh, focuses on one of Saul's victories, really uh, one of his few victories, one of the few good things we see with King Saul we will see today in, in chapter 11. And so Saul has been proclaimed king. He's kind of king of the land. Israel's trying to figure all of this out. And that's where we find ourselves as we begin chapter 11 this morning. So follow along as I read chapter 11 for us. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition, I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, 
let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So we have a a good story here for Israel anyways, not if you're an Ammonite, but it's a good story for Israel in this case. And what we see is we see there was a threat. A threat came upon Israel from the Ammonites, from a close town, from this guy named Nahash. And Nahash there was fighting, had conquered some of Israel, and the Ammonite threatens Israel. And he tells Israel, I'm going to destroy you, I'm going to take your town. But they kind of plead to him, and in his kindness, he says to them, sure, uh, I will be kind to you, I will not kill you, but but I have to pluck out all of your right eye. Kind of cruel thing to, to say. And it's actually interesting because Israel thinks about this and they say, well, let us think about it. Would you give us seven days for us to go out through all of Israel and to see if anybody will save us? And this is interesting because if you're Nahash in this moment, at least me, what I would do is I'd say, no, I'm not going to let you go find someone who might be able to beat me and to save you. I have you where I want you right now. But it shows how confident Nahash was that this wouldn't happen. That he says, yeah, sure, I'll give you seven days. If you can find somebody, great. But if not, all of Israel's eyes are, they're getting plucked out. The right eye is getting plucked out. That's what's going to happen. That is what's going to take place. There seems to be no concern in this man at all that this will happen. Well, the people end up going to Saul. They go to the town that Saul is in. Saul, remember, is their new king. And so who else would they go to at this moment? Seems as if Saul is out in the field because it says he comes from behind the herd. So he's out in the field and he sees everybody in town weeping and crying. And he asks, what is going on? And so when he finds out what happens, we see something very important happen in verse six. Because in verse six, it tells us that the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. And that is very important, actually. That's a very important thing. And we'll we'll talk more about that here in a moment. But when Saul hears what is going on, it says the spirit of God comes upon him, right? Comes to him and it says, when this happened, it's interesting because when the spirit came upon Saul, it tells us that his anger was greatly aroused, which actually seems like a very unspirit-like thing, does it not? Parents, I think we should use this with our kids uh, when they get us ticked off. The spirit is bubbling in me and I'm about to whoop you tirelessly. I'm going to use this verse, I think, often. But we don't think about that when we think about the spirit rushing in on us, right? When we think about the spirit rushing in on us, we, we see different things really all throughout Christianity of what that might mean. But it might mean that you're moved, right? That you're moved, you're you're excited about maybe what God is doing, that the Spirit is moving you, or the Spirit has moved me to go talk to somebody, people would say. We, we use these things with the Spirit, but very rarely do you hear somebody say, the Spirit moved me in a way that my anger was just greatly kindled. But this actually was, was a good thing that he was angered because the enemies of God were coming against the people of God. And so the Spirit aroused up within Saul this anger that caused him to be motivated, that caused him to move and to do what he needed to do to save Israel as their leader. And so really this is reminiscent. What what we see happening in this passage, if you want to study it some more, is we see a lot of parallels with the judges, with the book of Judges. 
And here, when we see that the spirit aroused within him, your mind is supposed to go to Samson. You remember the story of Samson, this great, strong, did the Nazarite vow, wouldn't have his hair cut. And in scripture, a few times with Samson, the spirit would arouse Samson and then he would fight the Philistines. He would kill like 30 guys at one time. There are all these different things that, that he would do. And our mind is supposed to go back to that, uh, back to the judges, those who are leading Israel and how Saul now is kind of carrying this forward, how God is now working in Saul to do these things. Well, Saul comes up with a plan and his plan is to get people together. And so he kind of does this in a fearful way. He cuts up the oxen that he has. He sends pieces of the oxen all throughout Israel. And he says, if you do not join me in this fight, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. This is what's going to happen to your property if you do not follow your king into this battle. And scripture here tells us that the people listened, that the people obeyed, so much so that 330,000 Israelites would gather together to form this army to go up against the Ammonites. And so within this plan, it says early in the morning, Saul takes the 330,000 people, divides them into three different groups and sends them into the camp early, real early before people maybe would, would get up. And it tells us that it was a very decisive victory. Right? Israel goes in and they, and they win. And so much so, it says that the Ammonites spread Right, So they didn't kill them all, but they, they spread out so that not even two of them are hiding in a cave together. They're just all over the place. Well, we get to verse 12. And if you remember, when Saul was chosen as king, that most of Israel went with him, but there still was a band of people who looked at Saul and said, this is not my king. We will not follow him. You remember that? That happened at the end of, of chapter 10. And so the people kind of remember that and they say, hey, who was it who said Saul was not their king? Bring them to us so that we can kill them because they obviously are not part of Israel. But then Saul speaks up in verse 13. And remember what he said. He said, not a man shall be put to death this day for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Saul does not take credit for what happened. Right? He doesn't heap praise on himself. He doesn't say, yeah, let's go get those people who wouldn't side with me. Instead, what he does is he gives credit to the Lord. He says, no, the Lord has done this. See, the people are thrilled with Saul. They're thrilled with what is taking place. But Saul says, listen, it wasn't me that did something great. It wasn't me, the king, that did something great here. It was the Lord who did something great here which again should make our mind go to verse six, to when the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. Saul recognized that it was not even of his own doing. And so that's very important for us to remember as we look at this, because this really is one of the best statements that Saul says in all of scripture of what he said there in verse 13, that it wasn't me, that it was the Lord. Because you have to remember, to give you a little thought of where we are heading, Pretty soon, Saul is going to be the guy who's mad because more credit is going to David over a victory than to himself. That's the man that's talking here. But at this point in his kingship, he says, no, this really has nothing to do with me. It's, it's all of the Lord. I, your king, am victorious because the spirit of the Lord was upon me. And this salvation has come from the Lord. Sadly, again, this is very short-lived for Saul. 
But we see an important point already here that we can't pass up for us as believers today. The same, the same spirit that is working in the life of Saul here to do this great act and to do this great work is the same spirit that works in us today as believers. It's the same spirit that we have uh, by grace through faith in Christ. We receive this salvation. We are given this salvation, this pardon from our sins that was paid for by Christ on the cross. But then we are told that the Holy Spirit then lives inside of us as believers, dwells inside of us to empower us to be able to do the things that God has called us to do. This is, this is what makes us different from everybody else. This is the key factor because, you know, you might look at things sometimes and say, well, what's the difference if this non-Christian person gives people food compared to if us as Christians give people food? Or what if they're doing these mercy things and then we're doing these mercy? What, what makes us different in doing these? The Holy Spirit is what makes us different. Yes, it's good that they are doing these acts. And, and I applaud those people who are not Christians who are doing good things for Mankind, And we, we shouldn't belittle that. We shouldn't push that down. We should be thankful that that happens. But there is a difference when we as Christians do those things because we do it with the gospel in mind. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit to change somebody's life, not just to give them food to eat, but to trust that they will taste the bread of life in Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus with the woman at the well. She goes there thirsty. Even Jesus is thirsty. He wants something to drink. But when he asks water from her, he ends up telling her, remember, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And remember, she's all confused. She's like, what do you mean? You don't even have anything to get water with. And he says, yeah, but the water that I can give you, you will never, you'll never thirst again. You see, it would have been kind of Jesus maybe to take her bucket, get water, give her all the water she needed for the day. Maybe even say, you know what? I'll carry it to town for you. I'll make sure this is all good. But see, that's, that wasn't his main focus in that moment. Just like us as Christians. When we do these different good things for people, we are doing it again, trusting that the power of the Holy Spirit will work through us to work in their life, not just to satisfy hunger, not just to satisfy thirst, not just to clothe them with something, but to give them an everlasting joy, hope, and peace that can only be found in Christ. The same spirit that strengthened Saul back then continues to strengthen us. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse 26, he would say, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Later, the Apostle Paul would talk about the Spirit as well in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So, so we can look at this situation with Saul and say, wow, the same Spirit that aroused Saul to do these great things lives within me. That's what you're saying, Pastor? Yeah, I am saying that. But also, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside your mortal body to raise you up from the dead, to conquer that sin in your life so that you then can function as a Christian and be effective as a witness, to be effective as a disciple of Christ, to grow, to be formed, to be made into the image of Christ. We have that ability not because we're so smart, 
Not because we're, we, we have all the skills necessary. No, because the Holy Spirit can actually make us who are dumb smart enough to see the truths of Scripture. Can make those of us who have no abilities whatsoever useful in his kingdom through the Spirit. That's good news for us today. Oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, we think the Old Testament is old. There, there's kind of a, a strain of our faith. I don't know if I would call it our faith, I guess. They're trying to get rid of the Old Testament. That, that's been happening for a long time. This isn't a, this isn't a new thing. This has been something for a long time. But, but they get rid of the Old Testament because they say, we now have a new covenant. The New Testament is here. But see, the problem is when you, when you do that, when you, when you get rid of the Old Testament, you get rid of things like this where you see, no, this is actually God's grand story from all along. And the same God that worked then is the exact same God that is working today. The same spirit that empowered Saul is the same spirit that dwells within me today that continues to do work today. And we have to hold on to this and we have to understand this. We have to be thankful as Christians that the spirit of the Lord dwells in us to remind us daily. And don't you need this? I know that I do. To remind me daily of who God is, of what God has done, to remind us of his word over and over again because this, listen, this is where our strength comes from. Because sin comes into our life, even though we try to avoid sin, sin still comes into our life. And, and you know this if you've been a Christian for any time at all. It robs us. It steals from us. It takes from us the joy that has been promised to us through Christ. And it's, but it's because we start to hope in those things. We start to trust in those things. And the only thing that gets us back on track is the truth of God's word. If it wasn't apart from the Holy Spirit to continually reorienting us back to him over and over again, we all would be lost. We all would be gone astray each and every single day. And I was pretty amazed at one point in my life, I met this Christian who said he, he had conquered sin. It was over for him. He, he doesn't deal with it anymore. Uh, you know, that God had allowed him to, um, I don't know, Rise above it, I guess. Now, I didn't stand there in amazement. I, stand there, I stood there very confused. I didn't say what was on my mind at the time. I, I didn't need to. Man, how, how confused is that person? Because he's putting it all on himself, right? That he had conquered this sin, that he had overcome this. And that's just not how scripture tells us it works. That Christ has conquered it for us. And Paul would talk about how we still struggle in our sin, but the grace of God continues to hold us, which we'll, which we'll get to here in a minute. But I just wanted to point out the spirit-led life, and that's what we need to be faithful to do and to trust into. Well, at the end of chapter 11 and verse 14 through 15, Samuel says some interesting thing there in 14. He says, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. There's some question as to what he means by renew the kingdom. You can study that if you would like on your own. I'll trust that you'll do that. But it seems as if what he was saying is Saul was anointed king. Saul had been proclaimed king. But it kind of seems like Samuel now is talking about a coronation, like a religious ceremony for the king. That's kind of what it, what it seems like is happening there. And it's interesting the place that they do it. They do it in Gilgal. Now, 
That should pique your ears if you, if you study scripture at all, because in the book of Joshua, Gilgal is a very important place, and it's a very important place of worship. When the Israelites would cross the Jordan River on dry ground, the Ark of the Covenant would go in, the river would split, they would cross into dry ground, getting ready to go to Jericho to conquer Jericho. You remember that story where they would circle Jericho and scream and the walls would, would crash down? I was in a play with that once. You remember that story? You guys look dead. Yes, you should remember that story. Okay? They cross the Jordan River and they enter into Gilgal. And the first thing that Joshua leads them to do really makes no sense in military strategy at all. But he decides, we need to worship God here. And the way that they worship God is they went back to the covenant of Abraham because they had been in the desert for so long that they were not doing what God had called them to do. And that was circumcision. And so he took all the men of Israel and they took flint knives, it says, and they circumcised all of the men after they crossed the Jordan River to consecrate themselves before the Lord, to say that they were the Lord's chosen people. And they did it as an act of worship and they worshiped the Lord. Instead of going straight and fighting, they actually weakened themselves because this is what God had called them to do. This happened in Gilgal. When they finally entered the promised land, a time of worship. And so Samuel now is going to bring them back to Gilgal for a time to renew their worship as a people with the king that God had given them. That's what's important. That is what is taking place here and what Samuel is saying. Now let's turn our attention to chapter 12. Chapter 12 might not be this time at Gilgal. It could be a different time. There's, there's really no way to tell. But this is Samuel addressing Israel. It says, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or who have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, the Lord is witnesses against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought, for, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Caesarea, commander and of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaros. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Badan, Jephthah, and Samuel 
and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You've done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. This is, to me, one of the most important verses. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So Samuel has a time with the people of Israel and he gets to address the nation. And in verses one through five, he brings up his integrity, right? And the people admit to Samuel that he has done no wrong. Now you have to remember the position he was in. The people, when he was the leader, the people come to him and say, we want a king. And so no doubt in Samuel's life, he has to feel like they're rejecting him. And you remember that the Lord would tell Samuel numerous times, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. But in Samuel's humanity, he had to feel that way. He had to feel as if there's something with me that they don't like. And so he stands before the people and he says, what have I ever took from you? What bribe have I ever done that made me look the other way? Tell me if there is something here. And the people respond and say, you've done nothing wrong, Samuel. And they say, even the Lord is our witness. You have done well. And so Samuel says, well, then good. Let me speak to you then for a moment. And so he reminds the people of the covenant that the Lord had made with Israel. And he walks them through the story with Egypt and Moses and these other things. And he tells them, if they follow God's commands, including the king, that the Lord will be with them. You gotta remember, Saul is here. <clears throat> and he's saying, listen, if you guys will follow the Lord and be faithful to the Lord, including you, Saul, then the Lord is going to be with you. But, but heed a warning, if you're not... He will not be with you. And then Samuel does something kind of interesting. He says, isn't it harvest time? Now, this is important because during harvest time, there was no rain. In fact, there was often heavy drought in the land. 
And so he says, I'm going to show you the power of the Lord. And so it says the Lord strikes with rain and with thunder, so much so that the people become scared to death. He pours this rain out, he pours this thunder out, and the people don't know what to do. And so they actually, in verse 19, they go to Samuel and they say, pray for us. Seek forgiveness for us even. And notice what they say. We have done, we have added to all of our sins the evil of asking for a king. There is a confession there from the people that asking for a king was a sinful thing to do. It's amazing how they needed this mighty act of God to help them to realize this. It took God literally scaring them to death for them to finally grasp and to realize what God had been trying to tell them all along, what Samuel had been trying to tell them all along, that you asking for this king is a sin against God. Don't do it. Yeah, but we want a king. That was their response always. But now, when their life is on the line because of this great act of God, they have this fear, and now we see that there is this confession. Really, it's not very different from today. Most people do not deal with many things when it comes to God until they're forced to do it. Sadly, as a pastor, I I get to be in situations at times where people are forced to do these things. It might not be like some great thunderstorm or some great miracle, but oftentimes what God uses in people's life is when life gets real. That's what I've noticed. Uh, When all of a sudden there's a death in the family. When all of a sudden there's a situation where money is extremely tight and we think, We don't know which way we're going to go, right? When we face these real situations in life, it seems like those are the moments when people start to ask the questions that they should have been asking all along, right? They start to wonder about things of God. They start to wonder about the goodness of God. They start to ask these types of questions that allow answers to be brought to their attention. And so we look at a story like this and some might say, man, I wish God would get people's attention. I want to say God does still get our attention in these ways. Sadly, too often people don't turn to him. They turn to other things or when they turn to somebody who should point them to the Lord, we don't have the courage to do that. And we fail in those avenues or in those venues. But this still happens. When we face calamity, when we face strife, all of a sudden it gets very real in our life. We face situations like death. All of a sudden these questions become very pertinent to us man, what do I do with my sin? What, do, what does happen with this cold heart that I know that I have, this attitude that I have? All along, I've been saying I'm a good person, but deep down I know I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm not as good as I, as I portray to everybody else. And if God is this holy God, uh, I, there's a problem there. It took a thunderstorm for these people, but they did confess you know, you can be, we can be frustrated at them. We can say how ignorant they are, but at least there in verse 19, they did confess. They went to Samuel and said, we are guilty before God of this sin of asking for a king. But this is where the good news comes in. This is where the gospel is extremely obvious in the Old Testament. It's really one of the most beautiful passages I think you'll find in all of scripture of what Samuel says in verse 20 through verse 22. Because here we see the grace of our Lord. Notice what Samuel says. Look, then Samuel said to the people, do not fear. (laughs) 
you know, that's a hard thing because as a, as a leader, right, if you've ever dealt with somebody and you're trying to deal with them with, with faith and different things and they continually do dumb things and you continually remind them over and over again, if you do these things, this is what's going to happen. And maybe you've dealt with this at work with an employee or something like that, right? If you do this, this will happen and they do it. Oh, you got to be kidding me. They do it again and they do it again and they do it again. And if they come to you and say, please forgive me at some point, what do you say? No, you are dumb. You can't do this anymore. You no longer work here. I am tired of this, right? Enough is enough. But yet God again and again and again tells his, tells his voice there, tells Samuel, Tell them, do not fear. He, God got them where they needed to be. And he says, do not fear. Yes, listen, you have done all of this wickedness. Yes, all this stuff that you are confessing is true. It's not like God says, listen, it's okay. It really wasn't that bad. No, he's saying, what you're doing is horrible. It is really bad. But look what Samuel says. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. How much do we do that in our lives? You sin and you know it as a Christian. And you're embarrassed to go to the Lord in prayer. You've sinned so much that you're actually embarrassed to open his word. Because you think, just five minutes ago, I was acting in this sin. And so it's embarrassing for you to open this word. So you think, no, I can't. I can't do that. We, all, we almost act like I've got to make things right first, and then I can approach God. But God tells us something very different in this passage, does he not? It says, no, go to God in the midst of your sin because if you seek after these other things first, what does it say? It's empty. It's void. It's useless. You can't make up for it. It's almost like saying, okay, I just committed a sexual sin. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go hold a door open for an old lady. Maybe not anymore. It's not six feet. Maybe that's the wrong thing. I don't know. Maybe use a stick to open it. You open it up. I'm going to go do this nice thing. I'm going to do this nice thing. I'm going to go to church this morning. Now, now after all those things, now I can approach the Lord. Now he will see me worthy to approach him. That, that's not the God that we serve. God actually says in the midst of your sin, draw to me. Draw here to me. Look at verse 22. This is, I'm serious. This is one of the most beautiful passage, verses in all of scripture. I don't know if you'll find a more beautiful one. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Why does God allow us, as people who've been saved by his grace, to continually, daily, go to him even in the midst of our sin? Why does he do that? Well, first of all, he does that because of this. He finds pleasure in the fact that you are his child. I got to be honest, I don't think of myself much that way when it comes to my relationship with God. 
I think of it more as, man, I'm lucky, man, I'm fortunate. I never think of it as God finds pleasure in me because I know my sin. I know my struggles. But yet the Bible tells me that God has chosen me and he finds pleasure in the fact that he has chosen me. And that will never change. You know why? Because it tells us here, because of his character, that's what it says. He will not forsake you. Why? Because of his character. Well, one of his characteristics, one of his attributes is this. God never changes. The fancy word is immutability. God never changes. And so if God was willing to have me be one of his children on Monday, he will not change his mind on Friday. Now, for some of you, that's really good news because I mentioned Friday night and you think about what you did Friday night. But yet when you walked into this room, lightning did not strike you dead. When you walked into this room, God does not look at you in great disappointment. Yet scripture says God still finds pleasure that he has chosen you. And no matter what you do, it doesn't, it doesn't change that God finds pleasure in you. He will not forsake you. Listen, we can look at Israel and get so frustrated at them. I do that all the time. How dumb do these people have to be? They see walls of cities crash down because they blew a trumpet. Uh, I mean, they see later giants get killed by little shepherd boys. They, they witnessed all of these different things, yet over and over and over again, they would carry their little idols in their pocket. And God would have to tell them again and again and again, get rid of those things. But then he tells them, I find pleasure in you. I am pleased to call you mine. I know for me and my faith, my walk with the Lord, that is great news. That is reassuring news. Because in a day and age where it's very hard to find anybody in the world who would say, I'll stand by your side. You have to add up to all of these things in order to stand by somebody's side. And you guys know just as well as me, even your best friend, most of the time at any moment will turn on you if you say something wrong or do something wrong. Just because we're surrounded by weakness. We're surrounded by sin. We're surrounded by all of this corruption and it has such an impact. But yet for the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords to say, Tim, <laughs> I'll never forsake you. That is so reassuring because I fall short of what I would say his standard is very often. But in verse 22, we have that astounding word, I will not forsake you. I find pleasure in you. Again, hopefully this is something that we see for us, that God is the one that we should go to. In Psalm 51, 12, the writer of the Psalm, David, remember this is in the midst of his sin, Psalm 51, his adultery, his murder of the woman's husband. And who does David go to? He goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
This is what God does for us, even in the midst of embarrassment and shame in our sin. In the way that he does not forsake us, he gives us these promises that I will uphold you, that I will surround you. This, this really should remind us, I think, of Romans chapter 8. You remember that's the chapter where it talks about, you know, you are more than conquerors. It says all these things, but it asks a question in Romans 8. Who then shall separate us from the Lord our God? And the answer at the end is nothing. No one including you. Who shall separate me from the love of the Lord my God? I'll tell you who can't, Tim. Because Tim didn't start this relationship. Jesus did. He chose me. He chose me. Why? Because of his great name, the never-changing name of God, who cannot go against his nature, who cannot be changed. He is bound by this promise forever. And because of that, I can have hope for eternity. See, this is why we need the Spirit of God to indwell in us, to show us these things, to remind us of these things, to to engage us in these things in the thick of battle, in the thick of hardships. When life gets real, these are the promises that we hold on to as, as Christians. This is all that we have. But it's enough. It's what we need. As we finish out that chapter in verse 23 and 25, Samuel says that he has a calling on him as a leader. And Samuel promises to do his job. It's kind of like Samuel saying this. Despite all the junk you guys continue to throw at me, despite how you get on my case all the time, even though you just said I've never took a bribe, even though you just said that I've been a good leader, even though you pushed me aside and you asked for a king. He says, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. And in verse 23, he promises, he says, I will continue to pray for you, right? I will teach you the good and the right way. He makes this promise. And so there's really this promise that has been on leaders now for a very long time. This should be reminiscent of Acts chapter six because in Acts chapter six, the church runs into a problem. The church is growing so fast. There are people who are not being took care of. People are going to the apostles saying, hey, my mom didn't get food. My mom, you know, all these different things are happening. And the apostles are like, whoa, 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 whoa. And in chapter six, verse two uh, of Acts, it says, this is what they say. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You see, the apostles were saying, our job is not mercy ministry. Our job is not to take care of your mom and to do these things. Our job is to preach the word. Our job is to be in prayer. That's what the apostles recognized. And and now listen, they established a group, the deacons then, who would go and take care of those things. It wasn't that that stuff wasn't important. They were just saying, that's not my job. God has called me to his word and to prayer. That's what Samuel is doing here. And this really has been the calling on those God has called to that position forever. You have it with the prophets, you have it with the apostles, and today we have it with pastors. Their job is to pray and their job is to teach God's word and be in God's word. Why? Because that is the role that God has established for them. And what's interesting to hear for me as a pastor 
And for the two pastors that are, for the pastors in our church who are sitting here, it's our calling regardless of how you treat us. Regardless, which you guys treat us very well. I'm not saying it's bad. But regardless of how you treat us, it's my job to teach the word, to preach the word, and to be praying for you. Always. And you guys should hold me to that task. And that's what Samuel is saying. This is what we will do. But here's the thing. This role really has been fulfilled completely through the great teacher, Jesus, who the Bible tells us at this very moment, in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, at this very moment, Jesus himself is praying for you. Jesus himself is interceding for you on your behalf. Why? Because he fulfills this role as teacher, as prophet, right? We've known that. Well, then verse 24 through 25, Samuel gives a calling and a warning on the people who are there. He tells them, now fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. You see, all this stuff that I've been saying is very good news. You're not going to separate yourself from Christ. You, you don't have that power to do that because you didn't put yourself in Christ. He did that. He did that work for you. But that does not mean that we just go about then saying, I got free pass. I got a free card. Pastor Tim, you said, no matter what I did Friday night, God still loves me. So don't get on my case if you see me on Friday night and I'm not acting like I do at church, right? Get off my case. No, that's not what I'm saying. Romans deals with that as well in Romans chapter 6. For those of us who've been saved by the grace of God, who've been chosen by God and are part of his family, the Bible tells us that God has changed our heart to where we hate the sin that we do. That our, our goal in life is to overcome sin, to grow more like Christ each and every single day. And so because of what Christ has done for us and what we could not do, all we can do from here on out is to serve him with everything we have. Romans chapter 12 says we are a living sacrifice for him. That is what we are. That is what we give to him. I say, I can't give you anything for my salvation. You've given it to me, but here's what I can do in return. Lay my life down to you for everything. And so that is what we strive to do, and that is what Samuel is telling the people in Israel to do. Give your life to serving the Lord always, be faithful to that. We serve him because of what he has done. I think a big question for us this morning as we start to close, what is your motivation in being here this morning? What is your motivation in being a Christian? I think those are valid questions that we have to ask ourselves, that I have to ask myself. Is my motivation, my reason that I'm here because I want to be in heaven? Okay, I can't say that's a bad reason. I do too. <laughs> I want to be in heaven. Is my motivation being here today so that God doesn't strike me dead this week? So that I have a good week? Or is my motivation that? Is my motivation fear-based? I'm here because I'm scared of what God might do to me if I don't come. Or it could be I'm scared of what mom might do to me if I don't come. I really think what our motivation needs to be as Christians, and I've said this numerous times, 
Our motivation is we do this because of what he has done for us. That's why we do this. He has saved me. He has given me a new life. He has conquered sin for me. Therefore, I'm here. Therefore, I'm his. Therefore, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good employee. I want to be a good boss. I want to be a good citizen. Why? Because he deserves all of that. Why do I share the gospel with people? Because God deserves that. Not because they deserve it, but because God deserves that. You see, it's not maybe a huge difference, but it is a, va- it is a vast difference. And I think that's a question that we should ask ourselves as Christians this morning. What is our motivation? Is it the good things he has done? But do we continue to fall back to say, no, it's because I'm scared. Ah, this fear, or do people please? I don't wanna worry about that anymore in my life. I'm not saying I don't fall into it. I, I definitely do. But my motivation, I want to be pure. I am serving you, Lord, because of verse 22 because you will not forsake me. You find pleasure in me when you shouldn't, and I want to give you my life. If we can be a church that that is our motivation, if MMBC can be a church that is motivated by the things that God has done for them, and it's just an overflowing to our congregation together, it overflows outside these walls to this community, then I have no concerns whatsoever about the history, the future of this church. None. But if our motivation is something different, then I have great concern and I have great fear because those other motivations will fade. They fall short. So how do you respond to God's word this morning? We're gonna give you a time to respond to God's word. We're gonna sing here in a moment. I'm gonna ask if you would bow your head and close your eyes. We do this each week. You can come pray if you want up here, pray at your seat. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no doubt there are people in here this morning you've never trusted in Christ. You couldn't say that he finds pleasure in you because you know you are not his. The Bible says by grace through faith in Jesus Christ you can be saved. And that if you'll confess that to him he will save you. And I trust and hope that the Holy Spirit is working in your life if that's you this morning, if you haven't trusted in Christ, I hope that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to that truth and that you will trust in him by faith. But for those of us in here who are Christians, we know we've been saved by God's grace. Let us praise him. Let us worship him. Let us go before him. If this morning in responding to God's word, maybe there is a sin that you are just struggling with and instead of going to him, you keep saying, let me get it right first. You keep going to these other things that are void and empty. Maybe this morning you'll give that up and you'll do what the word of God commands and you will go to him in your embarrassment and shame, understanding he will not forsake you. Maybe that's the grace that you need this morning. I hope that you'll do that. God, I thank you for the truth of verse 22 there. That you will not forsake us, your people, those you have chosen, who you find pleasing. God, what good news that is, because I know for me, I would fall out of your favor so often if that wasn't the case. 
God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our faults. Help us to be willing to confess them to you. But God, I pray that we would hold on to the joy of our salvation that you give us. That we would hold on to the hope that you give us because you never change. That it is cemented, that it is firm, that it cannot be moved or shaken by anything of this world because that is against your character. And so God, because of that today, we have a hope. We have a hope in the future because you hold that future. You, we know the end game. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords over all things. And so God, we can stand here this morning with great joy and great hope, even with so much turmoil around us of what is happening in our nation, even around the world. But with the things that we're facing with an election year, with the social justice stuff, God, even in the midst of all that uncertainty, we as Christians stand on a firm foundation that cannot be moved. And God, we thank you for that. So God, this morning, help us to deal with our sin, how we need to do it, laying it before your feet, helping, help us to approach you with confidence, knowing that you love us, but being willing to deal with sin. And God, I do pray for those here this morning who've never trusted in you, God, I pray that that would change. I pray that they would believe in you this morning, that you would work that in their life in just a miraculous way. So God, as we sing this song, help us to praise you, we ask in Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.